been a while it has been a minute it's been like a month right yeah yeah like more probably yeah 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 how's life (laughs) life is crazy but like a good crazy yeah hectic but cat's got a new job like sort of yeah 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 (laughs) lots of training (laughs) lots of training um inundation inundation of information Oh, an right. undation of information. Inundation, of Inundation. Okay, I was like, is that a word? It is not. <laughs> Inundation's a word, not undation. That's I what I heard. Undation. I know. I'm just wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. How's uh, life with you? It's good. Yeah. It's been uh interesting because of drama that's not my own. But oh, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Jesus, like, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I've just <sighs> my neighbors. Um, you guys, toxic relationships are not good. Get out of them. There's no yes. reason to stay in them. Yeah, They'll find someone else. They're unhealthy for you, and they're unhealthy for the for poor, everyone around unfortunate you. Unfortunate people that have to hear it. Your um, unfortunate neighbors. <laughs> um. Other than that, I've been really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like a my voice is like sort of kind of not back yet. <laughs> I, I told you that I was like, your voice actually sounds really hot when you're sick. What does it sound like normally? Very high pitched. No, that's fine. <laughs> My voice is I high mean, pitched. It's fine. I know mine's high pitched too. Oh, I don't know what mine is. So I so the reason we didn't have a full length episode last week, two weeks ago, I don't even know. Um is the last because time. Cat got COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rachel, we were supposed to go on vacation, yeah. and I was like, "So I'm sick. I don't think it's COVID because I didn't lose, I didn't have a fever, I didn't lose taste or smell." So I was like, "Ah, oh, it's just a cold." And then everyone around me tested positive. I was like, "I should probably go get tested." Yeah, I'm glad you did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of oddly perfect timing because I had you had a that week, week off, off yeah. and then I had to take an extra ten days off. Well, actually, it was just a week. The weekend. I was like, is it 10 you business were... days? Does COVID go on business days or does it go on regular days? It goes on all day. <laughs> it goes on all days. You were down and out for the count for a yeah. while, right? Like not yeah. hospital. She wasn't hospitalized. But... No, it was just a really bad cold. And like, even if it's not a really bad cold, if I get a cold and it gets into my lungs, it's just... Well, that's already not good. Yeah. COVID. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I remember I was like, I hadn't heard from you in a couple of days. And I was yeah. like, are you, are you alive? I was sleeping was very... so much. You know, once you mentioned that you got tested and it was confirmed, I was like, oh, that's why. Okay. I'll yeah. let her be and she'll come around when she's feeling better. Yep. It was, it was fun. <laughs> it sounds fun. Yeah, it was kind of nice <laughs> to have all that time off. <laughs> Not gonna know you were coughing up a lung. And, yeah, it's fine. I always cough up a lung. It was extremely just a little worse. tired. Yeah. yeah, that was the thing that got me. Was just like <clears throat> I could not like do anything because no. I was exhausted. Yeah. Like I take him Thor on a walk, and I come back. And I'm like I'm gonna nap for ten years. And You're it's windy. Be great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think my I knew somebody else who got COVID, and it was very similar. To yeah. Me. 
the exhaustion. It wasn't even lingered. winded. It was just like fatigued. Yeah. Like my body was like, fuck you. Body, I'm done. Your body was fighting. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it was interesting. Um, cat, <laughs> cat missed my birthday. Yeah. So it's not my fault I had COVID. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, open my presents Yay! on the podcast. Yay. Yay. So the first excited. one, I'm so in love with this and I can't <laughs> wait to like take it to work. Um, it's a coffee mug. <laughs> I didn't even notice the donut part. Okay. It's so got... <laughs> it's a unicorn. Um, it's a fluffy unicorn, it's a, like a fat It's unicorn. a very fluffy unicorn <laughs> in the middle of a donut. Like. <laughs> It's like, like an a, inner tube. Yeah. Donut. <laughs> it says, I'm not weird. I'm limited edition. <laughs> she got oh, me some funded, which is really funny because when um, I was up in Flagstaff, I went on the vacation. Yeah, she went on the vacation. Um, which was amazing and <laughs> lovely. And I want to go back. Yeah. Um, I I love the area, by the yeah, way. Like really. Flagstaff. Was if, it Munns Park or whatever? Yeah. So stayed in Munns Park, which is like a little retirement community in the middle of the woods for a bunch of like old white people <laughs> <Sound right. laughs> but it was a uh, very lovely very like no lights on at night you can oh, see the stars um 20 minutes south of flagstaff and about 45 minutes to an hour from sedona oh, okay. so it was we were able to go to both places um but i had seen some fun dip at target and i almost got oh some my God, yes but instead i got a 15 pound bag of candy that sounds right <laughs> i didn't realize it was 15 pounds so oh we got to the cabin and then both ron and i were like that's a lot that's a lot of candy <laughs> so i'm still working through that it does not surprise me that you bought a 15 pound bag of candy it's great you got me wedding accessories made with oh, love. What, what is. is this? I don't even know. Oh, I think it's a. It's from one of the. Oh. It's a tag from one of the things that I got. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I guess this is my wedding present. This is your wedding present. This is cool. Necklace. Is oh. it moons? Of course it is. Yay! Oh, that's so moons cute. and stars and all the stuff. And it's all layered too. I love yeah. like layering jewelry. That's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. So. I really like the way the star kind of like goes through the moon like that. It's really cool. Yeah, it's stuck. Gotta unravel it. Wow. She's already broken it, guys. Oh, fixed it. <laughs> so this is, I guess, <laughs> my wedding present in return for that ring that yeah, I yeah, yeah. gave you all those years ago. Do you return a present of an engagement ring? I don't think you... <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, what's this? What is this? <laughs> I love it. Yes. Oh, there's lots. Oh, it's yeah. a Virgo. I wasn't sure if you, I was like, really like, it's like, I don't know if she'd like this or not, but I like it. And I know she's a fucking Virgo. So <laughs> Virgo is the sign of idealism and purity. You're compassionate, nurturing, and extremely tenderhearted. Am I? <laughs> Am I? <laughs> you are determined you are. to stand up for justice and are always a champion for the mistreated. Wow, that's uh, in line with the whole situation <laughs> right now, actually. I know. <laughs> um, so there's two. One is the Virgo symbol. I was going to say, they are not watching. They're listening. So you have to describe. Yeah, what you're... I am. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> Simmer down. Simmer down. <laughs> I'm impatient. <laughs> and um, the other is the Virgo constellation. Oh, and it's an actual Virgo. Um, it's spelled out. <laughs> it's an actual Virgo. <laughs> so um, I learned something um... about... 
uh, the Virgo. I know, but I'm going to tell a story really oh, quick. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell a story within my story. I'm so tell a story. <laughs> the Virgo constellation disappears for half of the year, oh. which is why um, Persephone, the goddess Persephone, uh -huh. is associated with Virgo oh, because they say, time in Hades. yes, so when the Virgo constellation disappears, well, everyone Hades, has gathered. Not in Hades. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so um, when the Virgo dis uh, constellation disappears, it's when Persephone's going to the underworld. Oh, yeah, like isn't that, that really cool? That is cool. I love, I love stories and folklore and like things I that connect too. other things. And oh, I just noticed the inside of the cups was one of a kind. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, so and then we got oh, the actual present. Yeah. What do you mean the actual? Well, I don't know. You were like, those are gag gifts. <laughs> no, I mean, some of them are gag gifts. That's a gag gift. One of those is. <laughs> I was really excited when I saw it, so I got it for you. I don't even know if you like it, but. <laughs> oh, is that a draw? Oh my god, it's unicorn shaped mac and cheese. Is it? It better be colorful, though. I don't think it's colorful, Rachel, but we can get food dye. I can eat a unicorn. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, I saw that and was really excited because I know you're four. Ooh. <laughs> it's a tarot journal. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I've oh, been, yeah. been kind of doing that. Oh, is this like a daily one? Yeah. Thinking, feeling, and something to keep in mind? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> I knew you were journaling, and I, I figured you should uh, journal right. <laughs> Current mood. Oh. I've been... um. Well, I'm in therapy, which yes. talk to you about a little bit, because um, I don't know how to feel my emotions. Yeah, you don't. It's fine. <laughs> um, that's a trauma response. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's why I'm in therapy. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I've been trying to do with journaling is literally, uh, I'm reading a book that's helping you acknowledge and identify emotions, and the the reality is a lot of people don't even have a vocabulary for emotions. Yeah. So I've been trying to actually name the emotions when I'm journaling. So this is, um, wow, you, you're learning a lot about me. If it's you're beautiful. listening to the podcast, <laughs> but, um, this, this coincides with that, uh, uncannily. I don't know what you're trying to say at this point. Like, like very well, well, scary well. Oh, un yeah. Uncanny. Yeah. It's yeah. uncanny how, um, like appropriate to what's going on in my life right now this is Fuck so yeah. that's really cool thank you and the the cover is beautiful it's hmm. the moon it's a stenciled moon and the sun stars, sun, stars all, the sun. all the things all the things all beautiful <laughs> and i love it thank you so much you're welcome yay <laughs> i love giving gifts <laughs> i love i love getting them i'm this is I'm, perfect <laughs> i'm really so Ooh. i've noticed all of my friends they're very good gift givers and gift giving has never gift giving uh gifts has never been a priority in my love languages mm -hmm. um it's more like words of affirmation acts of service quality time i'm sure you yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> but i've been trying to just because like all of my friends have gotten me really cool gifts yeah mandy got me um i didn't wear it but she got my natal chart in a necklace yes and then she um ordered a very detailed uh, breakdown of my natal chart. Hell yeah. So I'm just pulling cat hair out of my mouth. Yeah, like um <laughs> Whitney got me that beautiful 
um, a Song of Ice and Fire painting, oh. had it commissioned. Like you guys are like excellent gift givers. Like so. That's our love language. Yeah, that's definitely mine. Like I, I will not. So thoughtful. I will not just buy like a. Like I won't just be like, oh, I'll just get them this. Like I, my gifts have to like have thought in them, yes. and like it has to mean something, and it has to. I think that's know. why, in the past, gifts weren't really given to me in that regard yeah and so that's why i'm like i people you know when dating would try to give me stuff and be like i really i'm not a gift person I don't want that. <laughs> yeah and i don't want it <laughs> but in these past few years like between you three um just made me really want to like step it up on my end with yeah. presents too yeah. so somebody told me like gifts aren't my thing but but planning really cool vacations are kind of my thing oh, yeah. um yeah it's just something i was thinking yeah. about lately so thank you yeah, very much appreciated i get to go to my birthday gift you do next week you're a year and a half late <laughs> fucking <gift>. covid <laughs> oh man anyway you're not listening to a podcast about love languages <laughs> You are listening to Difficult Damsels. That would be a nifty podcast. I'm sure it exists. Probably. Yeah. This is a podcast. <laughs> Sorry. About badass women from history. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we are officially on episode 22. What's it called? It's called Zenobia. No, what's the podcast called? I said Difficult Damsels. Did you? No, I'm not paying attention. <laughs> oh. What's your name? Oh, shoot. <laughs> I'm Rachel. We're doing really well. I'm Kat. Can you tell we're rusty? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I have COVID brain, okay? Uh, that's my excuse. What's yours? I just haven't had much sleep this week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about us. We're no. here to talk about Zenobia. Okay. Do you know anything about Zenobia? No. Good. name. Wow. Good. <laughs> no, it's uh means you're, you're a good... um. You're a good stand-in for our listeners who probably don't know who she oh, is. Okay. So I mean, which is what oh, you've been this whole time. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Okay. That's, um, all right. All right. We're gonna so, talk later. <laughs> in the middle of the third century, the world was full of political upheaval almost completely across the board, with long-established empires and dynasties dwindling into dust to make way for a new era of domination and rule. In China, the Han Dynasty falls. The Parthian Empire, the unwavering rival of, of Rome, falls as well and is replaced by the Sassanid Empire. And Rome? Well, Fuck Rome. it's become a bit of a shit show. Yeah, it's been a shit show. <laughs> oh no, but like more so. Oh no. Like really bad. Oh no. <laughs> Maybe if you guys let the women be in charge. I'm sorry. <laughs> Amidst the chaos, one woman was able to capitalize on the distraction and give birth to a new dynasty. Her name was Zenobia, and although her reign would be short, she will accomplish something that no woman before or after her has ever done or will ever do again. She will rule one-third of the Roman Empire completely oh, on yeah. her own. Hell yeah. I love how you always say, like, you know, the reign is short. And I think it's funny because, like, all of these women do, like, ten times more what any of these dumbass men who think they're <laughs> ruling an empire do in that short amount of time. Oh, yeah. And these guys are just, like, fucking it up. Clearly. As well, Rome wait. Indicates. <laughs> as, yeah, we're going to we're gonna get into what's going on in Rome. <laughs> it's, 
egos and uh, bullshit and bitchiness. Lots of death. <laughs> anyway, <Wait>. so <laughs> historical context. Oh, yeah, sorry. So in 241 CE, the kingdom of Hatra dissolves after the fall of the city of Hatra to Persia. Hatra had been a buffer kingdom between Rome and Parthia for 200 years. It marks an upswing in Persian power. In 248 CE, Ba Tru, aka Lady Tru, leads the ancient Viet chieftains and clans in a revolt against the eastern Wu dynasty of China. This was our, we mentioned her, yeah. the Trung sisters. I was going to say, that yeah. name sounds really, I'm like, you should have seen my eye was twitching. I'm trying to think. I'm like, where do I know the name? So basically you have, during this time period, all of these dynasties are falling and you've got um, some interesting revolts going on. Some of them led by women. In 263 CE, the Cowway clan conquers the Shu Han kingdom in China. This was one of the three kingdoms established in China after the fall of the Han dynasty in 220 CE. Two are now left. In 266 CE, the Jin dynasty is founded in China after the overthrow of the Cowway dynasty. And then from 235 CE to 284 CE, this marks a period known as the crisis of the third century. This oh. crisis will completely shake up the Roman Empire and ultimately result in its split between East and West. We'll get into it. Yes. <laughs> For now, I'm going to give you a brief history lesson on Rome and Persia in this time period. Now, Rome and Parthia continued to rival one another for the past three centuries, with each seeking dominance over the other. In 224 CE, Parthia officially falls. It is succeeded by the Sassanid Empire. The Sassanid Empire was known as the Empire of Iranians, or the Neo-Persian Empire. It will be the longest-lived Persian dynasty in history, as well as the last Persian dynasty before the Muslim conquest of the 7th century. The Sassanid Empire rises out of Iran and returns the Persian dynasty to its centralized location in Iran. It's Iran. Iran. Sorry. <laughs> it also seeks to restore the legacy and glory that had once been the Achaemenid Empire, which was... We talked about during the Artemisia episode. Did we? With Xerxes. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, Go you're right. to the Artemisia <laughs> of Caria episode if you want more on Xerxes. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Rome, everything's a bit chaotic at the moment. The Roman Empire has been a, in a bit of a decline since the death of Emperor Commodus. He was the uh, emperor dude in the Gladiator movie. Played by Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin. Joaquin. Um, fun that fact was the about movie that. I fell in love with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, he and his sister didn't have any Damn it, ancestral that's, relations. That's upsetting. But she, I was looking into her a little bit. Um, she's kind of her own sort of Agrippina figure that like tried to um organize a conspiracy against Commodus. Oh. So very interesting person we may cover one day down the road. Possibly. Maybe one day. Far from here, because I know everyone's sick of Rome. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> We're just sick of Rome's bullshit. <laughs> After Commodus died, Rome kind of just goes to shit. Um, I'd imagine at this point it's a little too big for its britches because it suddenly found itself dealing with rebellions in many of its provinces, ever-increasing political instability, plagues, and economic depression. These things were always going on at any given point in time during the empire, but during this period specifically, it seems like everything it's is happening just rampant. All at once. Yeah, everyone's yeah. like, "Okay, we're done. Death this." 
And Maybe the world is just like, fuck you, Rome, because eventually people get to just, that. There's just, when you have that much land space, of course. Yeah, there's no way to have all these to... different variables. Yeah, there's yeah. no way you're going to be able to dominate over it. Especially when you try to push your bullshit on everyone else and tell them their, their bullshit is bullshit. That was a yeah. really great sentence. Yeah, yeah. it was very yeah. academic of you. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> In- Y'all know exactly what I fucking meant, so... <laughs> In 235 CE, Emperor Severus Alexander is murdered by his own men, which sparks what historians refer to as the crisis of the third century. In the span of 50 years, Rome will have 26 emperors that will all die within quick succession of one another. Maybe don't go for that job, guys. (laughs) Now, the Roman Empire is just getting too big. And in the middle of the third century, it actually splits into three separate empires. You're gonna have to pull up the pictures. Oh, the pictures are coming up. Hold on. Make your birthday. You would use your birthday. <laughs> okay, so make that bigger. That's what she said. <laughs> Why are we so weird? I don't know. That's great. Now, the Far West was known as the Gaelic Empire, and it consists of Spain, Portugal, France, and Britain. The Gaelic Empire will have its own emperor and assign its own consuls and prefects completely independent of Rome. At the center is the main body of the Roman Empire, consisting of Italy, Greece, portions of western Turkey, and the northern portions of Libya and Africa. I would say that's Gallic because Gaelic is G-A-E-L-I-C. Okay, Gallic. Sorry. <laughs> I, I was like, Gaelic? Listen, Why are they over here? It's not important, okay? It's kind of important because I'm thinking Irish. <laughs> well, but it consists of Britain, too. Oh. That's why. Fine. <laughs> And in the east, we see the rise of the Palmyrian Empire. At its zenith, this empire will consist of eastern Turkey, Syria, Judea, and Egypt. This is where our story for Zenobia takes place. As this split occurs, the leadership in Rome will focus predominantly on the leadership of the main body of their empire and treat the Gaelic and Palmyrian regions as secondary concerns. The control they will have over these regions depends entirely on the emperor currently in power and the general stability of the realm. Hint, it's not very stable this whole time. What? (laughs) What do you mean, Rachel? (laughs) Now, while all this is happening, Rome is also coming into conflict with several pesky and troublesome, quote-unquote, barbarian Germanic tribes. These include the Goths, the Franks, and the Saxons. These tribes will cross over the borders of the empire, and at one point, the Goths will even cross over into Italy and strike a fear into the heart of Romans that has not been known for over 500 years. Hell yes! Rome itself might become a target. Ooh, I love it! That makes me think of that Netflix show, Barbarians. So good. Have you seen it? I haven't. It's on my... Holy shit! It was so good! Really? Okay, I will keep that in mind. And they have a second season, too. Okay. Yeah. I'll look into it. It was really good. I I was impressed. (laughs) I started watching the... Um, series on like the Roman emperors and I was watching the one about Caligula. Mm-hmm. Not done yet, but I was like, ooh, you're trying to make him look way better than he actually oh, was. I always do. <laughs> it's very sexy though. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> With Rome's attention so gratefully divided, it allowed for the outer regions of the Roman Empire to grow stronger and seek greater independence. It is from this environment that we get a very powerful woman by the name of Zenobia. I was going to guess it. (laughs) 
Now, we learned in our Agrippina and Cleopatra episodes that the one thing Romans seemed to fear above all others was the idea of a woman ruling Rome. <laughs> Cleopatra was accused of having designs on the Roman Empire itself. Zenobia is perhaps the woman that the Romans feared Cleopatra would become. 300 years after Cleopatra came Zenobia, a woman with an upbringing we know next to nothing about that would go on to dominate the East, take Egypt back from Rome, and ultimately style herself as Augusta Zenobia, a.k.a. Empress Zenobia. Oh, girl! <laughs> she is literally taking all of their fears and being like, come at me. Um, <laughs> I am your nightmare. One thing she would later claim is that she was actually directly descended from Cleopatra, but this was probably politically motivated mm. um, for reasons we'll get into for later. Reasons. For reasons. So... Very interesting thing about Zenobia's name, you'll find her mentioned with several different names in the sources. Her native Palmyrian name was Bat Zabai, meaning daughter of Zabai. Zenobia was her name in Greek, which means one whose life derives from Zeus. Oh. And after she marries Septimius Odanthus, she'll assume the name Septimia Zenobia. Septimius Odanthus? Odanthus. Odanthus? Mm-hmm. You're going to learn a lot about Odanthus. Odanthus! It sounds like. I don't know, it just sounds weird. <laughs> On official documents, she signed herself as Bat Zabai. So again, the daughter of. Zabai. Al Zaba. Zabai. Zabai. <laughs> Now, we also have a couple of sources for the life of Zenobia, and this is really interesting because we get some sources from the Roman historians, and then we also get some Arabic sources, and that's due to where she comes from. Now, the first is the Historia Augusta, which is a dubious composition of history that may have had as many as six different authors. Wow. Roman history. I would assume with that name, it's (laughs) Roman. (laughs) Much of the Historia Augusta was dramatized for the sake of entertainment. When comparing this text to previous historians like Tacitus and Cassius Dio, we might compare Tacitus and Dio to Lucy Lawless's warrior women. Yes. They were also dramatized. Dramatized. (laughs) Dramatized. (laughs) They were also dramatized, but we can assume the core events mentioned were accurate. The Historia Augusta is more in line with something like the Tudors. Names, battles, and generic events might be true, but the stories are often salacious and juicy, serving to entertain rather than to just give a play-by-play of events. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And then our Arabic source for Zenobia is Al-Tabari, from his own historical chronicle called the Tariq Al-Tabari, or History of the Prophets and Kings. Now, Zenobia was born sometime in 240 CE in the ancient city of Palmyria, which is in the center of Syria. Okay. I have a picture. She has the map. We'll include this on the Facebook post so you can right. get an idea. It's yep. great. Yep. <laughs> now, Palmyria had been located on an oasis and was tucked between two mountain ranges in Syria. It was a unique city because it's wedged pretty much between the Roman and Persian empires. That's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's also in a desert, oh. which protects it. Yeah. But yeah, so on that note, um, although Rome claimed it because the city exists literally on the eastern border of the Roman Empire. Because Rome just throws claims out like it's candy? Mm -hmm, Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) The city was not strictly Roman. 
nor was it strictly Persian. It's pretty much a blend of the two, yet its own thing at the same time. I have pictures on there that shows you some of the architecture of the city. Oh, wow. Because um, much of the ancient ruins still exist, and they are a world Unico um, heritage site. Interesting. So you get... I'm very um, distracted by the camels right now. <laughs> There's <laughs> a baby in the front. Sorry. <laughs> you get a... Scroll down. I think I have more. Oh, not that. Not that. Keep going. That. Okay. So you get a lot of the uh, the Roman colonnades from Roman architecture, <gasps> but then you'll also get sculptures that were done of the Persian gods oh. mixed into the architecture. So it's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Weird what happens when we come <laughs> together and, you know, yeah. compromise. <laughs> so weird. We get nice things. More importantly, Palmyria was incredibly wealthy. The city was a trading hub stationed along the Silk Road. Remember we talked about that? Yes, we did. And there's more than one Silk Road. Yes. So and there's also a Silk Ocean. <laughs> so, the, so the Maritime Silk Road was the ocean AKA route. Okay, the Silk Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but Palmyria was in the middle of the land-based Silk Road. Mm -hmm. So when you think of Silk Road, it's that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, as it was built on an oasis and surrounded by desert, anyone traveling to the west or likewise to the east has to stop in Palmyria. And so the leadership of Palmyria was able to charge any taxes they wanted to both merchants and travelers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we know very little about Zenobia's upbringing other than the fact that it seemed like her father's family was aristocratic and was also recognized as a Roman citizen. This meant that she herself would have had the status of a Roman citizen as well. Zenobia's father was Zabai ben Salim and called Julius Aurelius Zenobius by the Romans. Again, that three-name <laughs> format is our cue that he was a Roman citizen. Yeah, just throw two names in front of your real name and then you're Roman. <laughs> um, next to nothing is known about her mother, but some suggest she may have been Egyptian. Now, similar to Cleopatra... Zenobia was highly educated as well as a bit of a linguist. Dangerous. In addition to speaking her native Palmyrian Arabic tongue, she also spoke Greek, Latin, and Egyptian. Damn. In the Arabic version of her story from Al-Tabari, part of her education and training involved Zenobia taking charge of her family's flocks and shepherds. This is where Al-Tabari tells us that she gained an aptitude for ruling over men. Yes. <laughs> because she was ruling over sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you put that together, but yes. I did, I did. <laughs> now, according to the ancient sources, and this is the case with all powerful women, Zenobia was said to be an exceptional beauty. Oh, Jesus. This is what was written of her. It wasn't said about Cleopatra. She was said to be plain. Uh, by this time period, because of her char her charisma, Cleopatra is now supposedly a great beauty. Of course she is. She's awesome. <laughs> She claimed her descent from the Macedonian king of Egypt. You can't just change your mind. Sorry. <laughs> Equaled in beauty, her ancestor Cleopatra, and far surpassed that princess in chastity and valor. That princess. <laughs> you mean the bitch who like took over all your stuff because she's more better? More better? <laughs> better? More better. <laughs> you don't need the more no, better. She's more better. <laughs> Zenobia was esteemed the most lovely as well as the most heroic of her sex. She was of dark complexion. Her teeth were of pearly whiteness. Her teeth were of pearly whiteness. And Sorry. her large black eyes sparkled with uncommon fire, tempered by the most attractive sweetness. 
Her voice was strong and harmonious. Her manly understanding was strengthened and adorned by study. I'm really upset that <laughs> men are not described like this because can you imagine the amount of time it would take to describe every dude like in this way? Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> He was chiseled with his manly complexion. I don't know. I'm trying to write like the Roman. Adonis marble statue-esque-ness. Abs. His abs of steel. His abs, abs of, of Adonis steel. steel. He was behind the curtain. No, that wasn't him. <laughs> As you have probably figured out, Zenobia is attributed with the highest of both masculine and feminine qualities. She is observed as being beautiful and charming, both fierce and sweet at the same time. And she is said to possess qualities not typically observed by women, chiefly heroic bravery and intelligence. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's wrong with I'm that? I'm sort of offended. I feel like you have an issue. Mm, yes, I do. With, with Rome. <laughs> with Romans attributing intelligence strictly to male. They're not traits. fucking intelligent, though. That's the best part. <laughs> I just love how they can't they can't just be like women are this like they're like oh she was different at, from women she was both male and female like no bitch she was female and better than you in every way <laughs> sorry I am done I'm off my soapbox okay are you sure I'm not it'll be back <laughs> it will be back <laughs> yeah all right, so before we can get further into Zenobia we have to first talk about her husband because he was kind of a big deal kind of a big <laughs> <laughs> so Zenobia's husband was Lucius Septimus Odanthus, as previously mentioned. The interesting thing He's a Roman citizen, everyone remember. <laughs> um so the interesting thing about him is that his family most likely had ties to the Roman senatorial class, and he was also afforded the status of consul and designated the Roman governor of the Syrian province. Oh. But the interesting thing about Palmyria was that it was a city that was historically ruled by a council. As the Sassanids started to gain more power and chip away at the eastern borders of Rome, the council of Palmyria found it necessary to elect a leader among them, and they ended up choosing Odanthus. As the Sassanids were destroying Syrian trade posts along the Euphrates River, Odanthus decided to reach out. He ends up sending Shapur the, I a significant gift and a letter by basically saying, this is done in Rachel's pen. Um, what? <laughs> hey, I'd love to work with you. Please accept these gifts as a sign of good faith. Please maybe don't invade us either. Okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> no, I'm definitely sure that's what he wrote. <laughs> okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> Unfortunately, Shapur was less than impressed. He apparently did not believe the letter was deferential enough and responds by threatening to turn the city of Palmyria to dust if Odanthus did not submit to him on hand and knee properly. What the actual fuck, mofo? I gave you a present. What more do you want? He apparently gave him, like, some really expensive camels and other stuff. Probably, really like, gold. Yeah, they're prized Did in this area. A camel in front of Maybe. parade there. <gasps> yeah. I want a baby camel. <laughs> this is going to end up biting him in the butt later. He a baby camel. <laughs> in the meantime... Emperor Valerian in Rome ends up marching against Shapur to try and reclaim some of their lost territory and push the Sassanids out. But he ends up getting captured outside the city of Antioch. That's unfortunate. Yeah, this is a huge deal. This is a Roman emperor <laughs> in enemy hands. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> so, um, we don't know what happened to Valerian after this. Oh, shit. Yeah, um... 
So Rome never finds out, and we're all left. All we're left with is stories and speculation. Some of the sources suggest yeah, bad, probably. that Shapur enslaved Valerian. The most critical anti-Persian sources suggest that he was subjugated to all manners of humiliation and torture. One story tells us that Shapur used him as a footstool when mounting his horse. Sorry, that's just like, of all the things that you could have come up with. Another suggests that Shapur flayed him alive and taxidermied his skin as a trophy. Uh, that's, that's, that just escalated quickly. <laughs> it did. <laughs> Footstool to flayed alive. Um, yeah, apparently he, like, kept it in his throne room and when dignitaries would come visit, he'd be like, say hello to Emperor Valerian. I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm just stuck on Flayed Alive. Oof. That's. Yep. <sighs> others are great. Others say that he was just simply executed. Um, now, this is an interesting theory. Modern historians speculate that he and the men that were captured with him were put to work building a Roman style bridge. It's in your picture. Oh, I'm like, why are you pointing at me? <laughs> and it's called the Band A Kaiser. This one? Yes, oh. um, a.k.a. Caesar's Bridge. Um, this bridge is unique because it marks an example of Roman architecture that is basically uh, the furthest evidence of Roman architecture within the Persian Empire. That's an Iran. Iran. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like the first story where he goes in a that would be a good movie well so that that's literally what it was they were put yeah. to work um in masonry like and that's where that bridge comes from now valerian's death prompts a huge power vacuum back in rome resulting in a civil war breaking out between his son and a couple of would-be usurpers to the imperial throne um i don't have any time to get into this just know that there's much politicking much wow going on is there much death and much death. Oh, fuck. So much death. So much death. <laughs> what you do need to know is that this created an opportunity for Odanthus to rise up in the east. Remind me who Odanthus is. Zenobia's husband. Thank you. I was like, I think I know this. <laughs> There's too many names. We're yeah, we're gonna get more into Odanthus. Okay. Remember that petty response that Shapur sent to Odanthus about submission? Yeah. Well, Odanthus did not take too kindly to being threatened. He ends up using his absurd amount of wealth, absurd amounts of wealth, <laughs> to hire some mercenaries and then organize them along with the Syrian peasantry. And he marches against Shapur's forces, yes. ambushing them as they are fle fleeing another Roman contingent. Good. Odanthus wins the day here and drives the Sassanids completely out of Syria. He's like, I gave you a fucking baby camel. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you're stuck on the baby camel. I know. It's not even real. <laughs> This ends up being a huge triumph for Odanthus. Not long after, he'll march against one of the would-be usurpers to the imperial throne in Rome that has been stationed in Syria. Oh, shit. This results in Valerian's son, Galenus, becoming the next emperor. Damn it! And Odanthus, <laughs> he is now the most powerful man in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. Shortly thereafter, he names himself King of Kings. This was a tradition that dated all the way back to the Achaeans. Again, Xerxes had named himself King of Kings. Yeah, I remember that. And it was to denote that he was the most supreme ruler of all the kings in the East. Cleopatra had done the same thing. You can't herself. just name yourself that though. Like when I feel you like... when you push 
the Persian Empire outside of your borders. I mean, you did it. Your people did. No, he led it. He was the general. Yeah, but the people. He did it himself. No, okay. He did. No. He did it he when puppeted everyone. <laughs> he did it when no one else in the Roman Empire yeah. could do it. Yeah. So that's the thing to take away here. Fine, but you still can't name yourself. <laughs> I am the queen of queens. The other thing I really want you to sink into oh, your brain sorry. is this. Mm-hmm. Had things gone a little differently in Rome, it is very likely that Odanthus himself could have been a contender for the imperial throne. Whoa. Okay. Several historians remark on him being the Julius Caesar of his time, as he was that capable and formidable in the field. Interesting. And very ambitious. Interesting. Zenobia thus becomes queen at this point. So far, she's been quietly living in the shadow of her magnanimous husband, but that's about to change. What you need to know at this point is that Zenobia is Odanthus's second wife. Oh. Together they had... That's important information. <laughs> yeah. So they have a son and his name is Babylanthus. But Odanthus had a son by a previous wife named Herodes, who was his heir. And upon naming himself as the king of kings, Odanthus also names Herodes as his co-ruler. As the prince of princes? As the prince of princes. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to have a theme, we might as well stay on theme. <laughs> Yes, he is the Prince of Princes. <laughs> anyway, so are we done hearing about Odanthus? Probably not. Well, are you are you done? Like, are you over it? Oh. No? Oh, Maybe? well, too bad he dies. Oh, shit. Okay, <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, that escalated really quick. Okay, Jesus. Yeah, he's um he's assassinated. That sounds right. Along with Herodes. His the Prince of Princes? The Prince of Princes. The Prince of Princes dies? They both die. Oh, I was so invested. So <laughs> I was not really. <laughs> so no one really knows what happened or why it happened, but it remains a popular historical mystery full of several conspiracy theories. Some people believe she did it. Now, some have suggested that the Roman emperor Galenus ordered the assassination. This theory would be supported by the idea that Odanthus was becoming a little too popular in his own right. Yeah, he threatened his ego. Others suggest the assassination of Odanthus occurred following a family dispute with Odanthus's nephew while they were on a lion hunt. Basically, the nephew killed the lion that Odanthus was supposed to kill, so Odanthus, like, shamed him, and then, I guess, his nephew killed him. Uh, the one thing I took out of that story is they're both assholes. Oh, yeah. Because they hunted lions. Well, what do you expect? Fuck you. They're all hunted. What do you think people have? <laughs> Not lions! <laughs> How There's something. Are, how else are you supposed to prove your prowess? There is something that makes. Oh, it makes me so mad when you have to prove your prowess by killing a fucking animal that's better than you in every way. But anyway, <laughs> look, the soapbox is back. Hey, okay, Tiger Queen, jeez. <laughs> now the Historia Augusta goes so far as to suggest that Zenobia herself had orchestrated the assassination because she wanted her son to rule, meaning she'd have to get both Odanthus and Herodes out of the way first. Jesus. They suggest that Odanthus's cousin, Ma- Manius, Maonius, Maonius. Maonius, did the deed, while Zenobia was complicit in the act. Um, but the thing we have to remember is that the Roman sources were grossly misogynistic. Yeah. And the idea that a woman could Didn't rise forget. out of this, <laughs> of her own Bullshit. prowess, <laughs> of her own talents, <laughs> without resorting to conniving and scheming manipulation, just is unheard of. It's not okay. Our fragile egos can't take it. (laughs) 
Another theory relating to Zenobia also suggests that she had her husband assassinated because she did not approve of his pro-Roman policies. But even this theory does not fully track because Zenobia does not overturn these policies after ascending to the throne herself. Whatever the motive may have been, history did not record it. All we know with absolute certainty is that one of his own men assassinated him. I thought you were going to say, all we know with absolute certainty is that he died. That too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, pick your poison. <laughs> Death and taxes, um, my friend. Death and taxes. <laughs> I, I personally don't believe Zenobia had anything to do with it, but okay. if you want to go with the femme fatale version of her, then you can say she did. Right. Either way, the transition of power appears to have occurred smoothly with little interruption. With Odanthus and Herodes now dead, Zenobia's young son, Babylanthus, who is eight years old at this point, <laughs> poor child, becomes king, and Zenobia assumes the position of queen regent in the year 267 CE. From this point on, Zenobia will claim to act entirely on Vavilanthus's behalf, but she essentially asserts power completely independently of him and anyone else in Syria. Vavilanthus is thus rele relegated to the sidelines, and there he will stay for the duration of... His reign, her reign, their reign. With a He'll name like Fabolanthus? Babylanthus. Babylanthus? Now, after her ascension to the Palmyrian throne, Zenobia assumed control of the Palmyrian kingdom and likely all the eastern territories that had fallen under her husband's control. You can pull that up. Queen on of the... Queens. Yeah, basically. <laughs> She's like, fuck this, I am the Queen of Queens. <laughs> Perhaps miraculously of all was the fact that her succession saw absolutely no opposition to her rise. You'll remember that Palmyria had previously been ruled by a council. There was no historically recognized monarchy in place, and following the deaths of her husband and stepson would have been the perfect time to try and strike against her. But none did, which may have been a testament to her own resilience and dominance. Or they just liked her, and they trusted her to continue Odanthus's legacy. As previously mentioned, as many as 26 Roman emperors will die in the span of 50 years in Rome. Odanthus may have been positioning himself to appear as a viable option for the imperial throne during all of this, given that he was already a respected military commander and a proven capable leader. But who wants that job? <laughs> People who want I will power. be the one that doesn't die, guys. It's fine. <laughs> Zenobia may have had the same idea herself. We're told that as everything was going on in Rome, she kept a watchful eye to see where the political cards would fall. Ooh. Now, Zenobia's court was very similar to Cleopatra's. She chose to surround herself with scholars, philosophers, and writers. It seemed that she was determined to make Syria a center of learning similar to that of Athens and Alexandria. Yes. Still what? mad about the library. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forever be mad about the library of Alexandria. <laughs> Fucking Caesar. Fucking Caesar. <laughs> One of the most prolific advisors within her court had been the philosopher Cassius Longinus, who had been a native of Syria but had studied in the city of Alexandria and then taught for 30 years in Athens before he joined Zenobia's court first as her tutor and later as her advisor. Longinus is said to have been the snake whispering in Zenobia's <sighs> ear that initially encouraged her to seek her independence from Rome. <laughs> Um, quite the role reversal, as it's usually the women that yeah. whisper in men's ears. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, Palmyria was also a multicultural and diverse city, meaning Zenobia was accustomed to working with people of different religions and ethnicities. 
From what we're told, she was a proponent of religious tolerance, and there were several different cults present within the city of Palmyria. Yes. Even though Palmyria was in the eastern portion of the empire, the city itself was very much a blend of both Persian and Roman influences. Zenobia herself was a follower of the local Palmyrian paganism, but she also accommodated both Christians and Jews within her city, allowing for both Christian churches and Jewish, Jewish synagogues to be built. This was during a time when religious persecution was on the rise in Rome itself. Palmyria ends up becoming a haven for different religious practices. Similar to the way the Roman emperors would assign governors to administer provinces in their name, Zenobia did the same thing, and she would assign governors to the regions that she would later annex into her growing kingdom. All right. Now, even though Palmyria would have been the capital of her kingdom, the city had its own senate that was used that was used to running the day-to-day administrative affairs of the kingdom. So when she assumed the title of queen, it's been suggested that she spent most of her time in the city of Antioch and moved her court there. Okay. Because we have evidence of the Eastern nobility taking up residence in Antioch. Remember that city? Yeah, it sounds familiar. Where Eleanor of Aquitaine and yep. her uncle. <laughs> there <Yeah>. it is. <laughs> Got it on. That city's <laughs> been around forever. <laughs> most have. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Paris is over 2,000 years old. That's so creepy. Isn't that crazy to think of? Caesar tried to... Um, of course he did. He he tried to take it. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Yep. <laughs> Fuck you, Caesar. <laughs> Never forgive him for the library of Alexandria. Uh-uh. uh-uh. <laughs> You're dead to me and the rest of the world. Now, mostly to me. <laughs> now, while Rome was preoccupied with its own inner political turmoil, as well as the invasions of the Germanic tribes into its borders... Syria was largely left to its own devices. So Zenobia starts by securing the southern borders of Syria, working to fortify settlements to the south as well as along the Euphrates River on the eastern border. And the thing about the Euphrates River is that going beyond the Euphrates River uh, in history was often seen as crossing over into Persian territory in the ancient texts. She would likely, she would have likely been fortifying these settlements against the Sassanid incursions. Zenobia did not act against Rome right away, but it seems that the more preoccupied Rome became with the Germanic invasions to the north of the empire, the easier it was for her to assert her authority in the east. This is right around the time she starts to demand allegiance from neighboring provinces and slowly begins her expansion to the south and into the Arabian Peninsula. Zenobia's main military commander was Septimius Zabdis, There's very little on record that details his personality, but I like to think of him as a stone-cold and capable, uh, capable, capable, (laughs) capable general. Um, And I like to think of him as the Marcus Agrippa to Zenobia's Octavian. Okay. Yeah. She's the brains. He's the military might. Zenobia's first overtly aggressive act was against the city of Bostra. Upon learning that Emperor Claudius II was busy fighting the Goths up in Thracia, she sent Zabdis to the city to take it, and his forces were intercepted by the Roman governor of Arabia, Trassus. But Trassus is killed during the fight, and the city itself is sacked. Arabia, Judea, and possibly the city of Petra were all quickly subdued in short succession, one after the other, until the Palmyrian army found itself on the doorstep of Egypt. Now, some may see Zenobia's actions as being opportunistic and as an obvious grab for power, but as the supreme leader of the eastern provinces, 
The thing we need to keep in mind is that the responsibility of maintaining order in the East would have fallen to Zenobia. Yeah. It's been suggested that Zenobia did not view her actions as being overtly hostile to Roman influence. Oh, she's doing her job. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) She may have simply moved to secure her own position as queen while Rome was otherwise preoccupied and unable to maintain order in the Eastern provinces. The historian Jacques Schwartz suggests that Zenobia's increasingly aggressive military actions in the East may have been motivated by economic concerns in Palmyria. With Rome unable to keep the Eastern provinces in check, it fell to Zenobia to do it herself lest the Palmyrian kingdom become directly affected. Yet we can't discredit the fact that Zenobia's march on Egypt was curiously timely and convenient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For one... It just so happened that the Roman prefect in charge of the region, Tenagino Probus, was out of wow. town <laughs> tending to other matters. He was dealing with pirates. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Fucking pirates. <laughs> in his... Opportunistic piracy! Yes, that's exactly what Zenobia is doing. <laughs> in his absence, an Egyptian general named Timogenes starts a revolt against Roman occupation, just as Zenobia's army was marching east following its conquest of Arabia. The exact date of the Palmyrian invasion of Egypt is still a matter of debate, but some historians place it after the death of Emperor Claudius II in late 270 CE. If this is the case, Zenobia would have most certainly been taking advantage of the chaos and confusion that would have been occurring back in Rome. And as the prominent leader of the Eastern Roman provinces, the duty of quelling an uprising against Rome would have fallen to Zenobia. How fortunate that Zenobia's 70,000 soldiers happened to be available to restore order back to Egypt. I just love that it has to be like one or the other. Like she's, you know, doing her job or she's taking advantage of the openings. And I'm like, why can't she be doing both? That's how I view it. Yeah. Like, I mean, she was like, oh, it's convenient. You're not able to come over here and deal with this. Now, there was just one problem with this whole thing and the idea of her acting in Rome's interest. <laughs> um, they did not appear to be on the side of Rome because in the end, the Roman garrison of 50,000 men was defeated by Zenobia's forces. Damn. <laughs> <Yeah>. Whoops. <laughs> so there's been some suggestion that Timogenes had conspired with Zenobia ahead of time before starting the revolts. Basically, he was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go whisper in the ears of everybody and be like, um, are you happy with Rome There's right now? Going on You're not right very now. happy, are you? We're not very happy. But we have we have we have Queen Zenobia coming. She's she's just vacationing right outside of our Egyptian borders. <laughs> You're not very happy. No, but I'm very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> with you whispering in my ear. Anyway, they anyway. end up uh they end up taking Alexandria. Whoops. <laughs> We I will that. I will say if if Zenobia had been conspiring with Timogenes, this would have made her an instigator of Machiavellian levels. <laughs> Not all matters were settled just yet. A tentative period of chaos followed after this. The Palmyrian forces left behind 5,000 soldiers to hold Egypt when the Roman prefect Probus returns to Egypt, he gathers a new army and takes back Alexandria from the Palmyrian garrison that had been left behind to defend it. 
Though soldiers flee back to Syria with Probus leading the pursuit, but when he gets to Syria, General Zabdis is waiting. Zabdis. <laughs> and he's evidently fed up with this little back and forth dance that the Romans and Palmyrians were doing in Egypt because it doesn't take long for him to take back the city of Alexandria. Damn it. <laughs> he's basically just, uh, he's just way better at his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once Alexandria is back in Palmyrian hands, it's Probus' turn to flee. And he ends up bunkering down in a Babylonian fortress. I have a picture of it because I thought it was really cool looking. Um, and this fortress should have been defensible enough to give the Romans the upper hand. But unfortunately for Probus, our sneaky boy Timogene re-enters the picture. And thanks to his familiarity with the land, his forces ambush the Romans and completely destroys them. Yes. Nice. Isn't that so cool? Looking? That is really cool. The uh, um, I'll put a picture of this on Facebook. But the fortress, it I don't even know how to describe it, but it's made of bricks, and they're white bricks, but they're interlaced with red bricks, and it's just really cool. Looking. It is. It, it almost is. looks Spanish. It does. But it's not. It's Babylonian. Yeah. In the end, Probus ends up killing himself, likely throwing himself on his sword. Was a Roman thing to do. Yep. <laughs> As we know. As we know. <laughs> Egypt is officially Zenobia's now and has been added to her collection of kingdoms. Her collection of kingdoms. <laughs> Even though Egypt is absorbed into the Palmyrian kingdom, it seems Zenobia still felt it necessary to save face with Rome. Once the next emperor has been chosen, um, it's Aurelian, who we will get into. Oh, no. I'm slightly scared when I talk about him. Why? <laughs> You'll find out. Oh, God. Um, we basically start to see new coins minted in Alexandria with Aurelian's image on the face and Zenobia's son, Babylanthus, on the other side of it. Oh. Once Egypt has been secured, Zenobia's forces immediately move to secure the Levant and Asia Minor on your map. Hi. This will be the zenith of the Palmyrian kingdom. No monarch has probably taken control over this size of land since the reign of Cleopatra approximately 300 years before. Now you may be wondering what Rome had to say of all of this. The short answer is that Rome was too preoccupied to notice, or if Rome noticed, it simply was not able to do anything about it until a strong enough leader entered the picture. They're just like, so this is happening, guys. This is great. <laughs> Enter Aurelian. Now, Aurelian was different from some of the previous emperors we have encountered. He actually came from completely humble means, allegedly as the son of a peasant farmer. Aurelian ends up joining the army around the age of 20 and gradually climbs its ranks by proving himself in battle time and time again. He eventually earns the love and trust of the Roman army, gaining acclaim similarly to the way that Agrippina's father, Germanicus, had done centuries before. You remember how much they loved him? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's Aurelian. Okay. Now, Aurelian was not bred to lead like Nero or Caligula, and he did not claim ties to powerful dynastical families as Claudius had before him. Aurelian was a general first and an emperor by circumstance. He had an aptitude for stamping out and subduing rebellions and invasions along the western borders and from the incoming Germanic tribes. His success within the legions had earned him the respect of his fellow soldiers and the same kind of Regina George fame that Germanicus <laughs> saw back in the day. <laughs> One of the most famous stories has Aurelian being named emperor at the same time as Quintilius by the legions. 
When Quintilius is made aware of the news, his friends and allies recommend that he take his own life because there's no way he'll be able to take Aurelian on himself. Wow. Best to do the deed with dignity. And, um... He did? He does. Oh my god. <laughs> so, uh, Quintilius is the shortest reigning Roman emperor, um, with some putting his reign at as little as 17 days. Wow. So basically... Quintilius was in Rome when he was named, uh-huh. and I don't remember where Aurelian was. He was out in the world doing, doing, his, thing. doing his thing, <laughs> and the Roman military names him emperor. And so basically Oof. everyone around Quintilius was like, you, you need to just... They're kind of... There's your sword. <laughs> yeah, it's right there. If you yeah. Can, just grab it. You're not going to beat him. <laughs> Shit. He couldn't have just been like, I don't want it. <laughs> oh, no. You can't have a rival. Jesus. What happens when you have rivals, Ken? I mean... They try to kill you. You're not wrong. But... <laughs> now, when Aurelian comes to power, he has a tall order to fill. The western portions of the empire have fallen to the Celtic Empire, and the east is gone as well, ruled by Zenobia. Germanic tribes are also doing something that hasn't been done in nearly 500 years. They invade the borders of northern Italy, and suddenly people in Rome are scared that the tribes might march on the capital itself. Damn. Again, it has not been done since it was first burned to the ground 500 yeah. years before. Wow. They are terrified. <laughs> but this isn't a story about Aurelian. Oh, yeah. So um, we're going to make this long and complicated political story very short. And if anyone's an actual Roman historian... You're probably gonna throw up a little bit in your mouth That's right now fine. but yeah anyway <laughs> he proves very capable he'll end up driving out the germanic tribes and completely destroys them oh like Damn utterly it. decimates them after that he'll turn his attentions to the west and he completely dissolves the celtic empire and absorbs the west back into the roman empire <laughs> Once all that is accomplished, he finally looks to Egypt, which is now under Zenobia's control. Now, the thing about Egypt is this. Not only is it Rome's wealthiest province, but the grain stores are also the primary source of food for the empire. Oh. Without Egypt, Rome starves. That's problematic. Yes. <laughs> and although Zenobia was savvy enough to understand that she could not outright stop all grain shipments to Rome, Aurelian knew it was only a matter of time before she did this. It's likely that Zenobia did not know what she was getting with Aurelian, at least in the beginning. Aurelian was otherwise preoccupied, as, he was as has already been mentioned. She did not have the benefit of hindsight that we now have, and likely expected the politicking in Rome to continue as it had for the past couple of decades. Yeah. Unfortunately... He's not a politician. <laughs> he is not a politician. <laughs> so, following the conquest of Egypt, Zenobia's armies marched back through the Levant and Asia Minor and managed to annex them into the Palmyrian Empire through peaceful negotiations. And at this point, she has complete control over the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. <laughs> In addition to adding Roman territories to her kingdom, she also conducted trade agreements negotiated with the Sassanids without ever consulting Rome on the matter. And these agreements were made solely with the interests of Palmyria in mind, not Rome. Ouch. And even though she started off by including Aurelian's name in all official correspondences she wrote, huh. as well as minted coin with his face on it, even all of that stops. By 271 CE, Zenobia started referring to Vabalanthus as Augustus and herself as Augusta which was the equivalent of emperor and empress. 
and so these the big giant backhand. <laughs> yes, these titles were specifically reserved for the Roman royal family only. By assuming these titles for herself and her son, Zenobia didn't just signal a break from Rome, she did something worse. Zenobia basically asserted her attempt to usurp the imperial throne of Rome itself, along with Thapalanthus, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she's basically mm -hmm. like, I am the Empress of Rome. I am the Queen of the East. <laughs> yes. <laughs> queen of Queen, Empress of the East. Now, once Aurelian finally settles things with the Vandal and Goth tribes. He, every time you say Goth. <laughs> I know, you think of the genre. <laughs> he immediately turns his attention to the East, and he doesn't bother to send any letters or dignitaries ahead of him to herald his coming. Oops. He is simply not interested in negotiations. I'm from a 14-year-old child because he said Harold is coming, and I'm like, no. <laughs> Aurelian is not a politician after all. He is a soldier through and through. So he ends up spending the winter of 271-272 CE in Byzantium, which is now the modern-day city of Istanbul in Turkey. Once he was ready to march, his campaign was swift. When he entered modern-day Asia Minor... Turkey. Mm -hmm. He deployed a scorched earth tactic and pretty much destroyed every city he came across. Oh no. Now another famous story relating to Aurelian was that he used to threaten to murder every single man, woman, child, and dog that refused what? to surrender to his forces. So fuck the dogs don't have a choice. And if we are to believe the stories, he did this. Uh, including the dogs. I yeah. don't like him. I knew you wouldn't. Ew. <laughs> He's just when he's on the war rampage, nothing's going to get he in his way. He sees red. But, as we're about to get into, they saw changes when he gets to the city of Tiana. Now, Tiana had been home to a famous philosopher of the time named Apollonius, Apollonius. who Aurelian was said to have greatly admired. And in this story, Apollonius ends up appearing to Aurelian in a dream and tells him that if he wishes to be victorious in the East going forward, He'll need to be merciful with the city of Tiana. And so he does. Wow. Yep. Okay. Aurelian extends his loving arms out to the city of Tiana Ugh. and promises that if the town surrenders, no one will come to harm. And this is exactly what happens. The town surrenders without shedding a single drop of blood. Wow. And clemency works in Aurelian's favor because having heard of how this, how the city of Tiana was treated, the rest of the cities on the way to Palmyria, quickly okay. surrendered to Aurelian before he even made it to their city gates. What? They pretty much just fell to him one by one. Yeah, they're like, we don't want you to kill our dogs. So like, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah. God. By this point, most of the Palmyrian troops have also been pulled from Egypt and have made their way back to Syria to protect Palmyria. Aurelian had split his forces at that point, so he was able to take back Egypt with okay. little issue. Sorry. <laughs> now, Zenobia's Palmyrian forces end up clashing with Aurelian 25 miles north of the city of Antioch, which is where Zenobia herself was staying. At the Battle of the May, um, we're not going to get into too many details. I'm just going to do a brief overview. But this was basically a very traditional fight with both the Romans and the Palmyrians lining up their infiltry. 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 <laughs> their infantry and their cavalry in traditional formation underneath the hot desert sun. Ugh. Aurelian led the Roman forces and Zabdis leads the Palmyrian forces. Okay. 
Now, it, at one point, it seems like Zabdis is going to win the day. The Romans had the advantage with their infant. Why is that infantry? word so Infantry! You're just combining so infantry and cavalry. It's fine. Infantry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Romans had the advantage with their infantry, but the Palmyrian cavalry was superior to the Roman cavalry. And Zabdas, is, uh, his cavalry proves aggressive against the Romans and drives them across the desert. But Aurelian proved to be a bit of a trickster because the chase the Romans led turns into being a trap. Damn it. Now, the Palmyrian cavalry was more heavily armored and became exhausted as they melted in their armor under the hot desert as they sun. melted in their armor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Aurelian's troops end up doing an about face at one point. They find a advantageous... Spot. spot to do Down. this <laughs> location <laughs> location and um, <coughs> excuse me they they surprise the palmyrian forces and just drive straight into them and they destroy them <laughs> now understanding the battle was lost zabdis retreats to the city of antioch and he snatches up Zenobia, and they abandon the city in the dead of the night Antioch was terrified of Aurelian's reputation and ends up opening their gates, fearing the worst is about to happen. Can I just say that when you said in the dead of the night, oh, in the dark of the night, popped into my head. (laughs) In the dark of the night, people will will find find you, you. find you. (laughs) I thought of it too. Um, I apologize. You're fine. That had to be said. Um, Anyway. Aurelian offers Antioch the same clemency he had the other cities in Asia Minor, and he's able to take the city bloodlessly. No dogs are killed in this battle. Thank Jesus. The final battle ends up taking place outside the city of Emesa. Zabdis once again leads a total of 70,000 Palmyrian men, and Zenobia retreats to the city of Palmyria to keep out of harm's way. So, battles outside of Emesa, Zabdis is there, and Zenobia goes all the way back to Palmyria to Uh await the news. Yeah. Now, Aurelian employs the same exact tactic of feigning a retreat Stop. in order to exi- to exhaust the Palmyrian forces. Stop! And they don't they don't they learn. don't learn. listen. No, no, they chase them and they get. You guys, this seems vaguely familiar, doesn't it? They chase them and they get. Heat Anybody stroke. getting their sense of deja vu right now? And then the Romans turn on them and they kill them. Oh, that sucks. And it, it shouldn't have happened because no. the Palmyrian cavalry was like known for being really, really good. Yeah. But sure. Um, not this time. Oh. Yeah. So uh it's that heat stroke. It'll get you every time. So it's at this point that Aurelian um he turns for Palmyria and it's time to take the city. Um <laughs> The Historia Augusta tells us that Aurelian and Zenobia start writing letters back and forth at this point. Do they love letters? No. (laughs) With Aurelian demanding that Zenobia surrender, and he also laments her loss of men. And her reply is arrogant and haughty. She claims there is little loss on her side, as the majority of men lost in her army were men of Roman blood. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mention this, but... Once she has it's kind of terrible, but oh my gosh. Once she has taken over the East, she has twelve Roman legions under her control, and these were the men that were fighting. So she's like, it's not a loss for me. They're it's a loss for you, technically. They're your men. Technically, if we're, yeah. we're talking like blood. Like <laughs> she also wrote the following. None <laughs> just imagine he's re- really reading, he's like <gasps> He was pissed. <gasps> he was like, not happy. <gasps> he was like, 
you're right. Son of a goddamn bitch. <laughs> we can't lose the the men with Roman blood. Oh no. <laughs> so Zenobia, she ends up writing the following. None save yourself has ever demanded by letter what you now demand. Whatever must be accomplished in matters of war must be done by valor alone. You demand my surrender as though you are not aware that Cleopatra preferred to die a queen rather than remain alive, however yes. high her rank. Zenobia is claiming the same of herself. Hell yeah. Okay. I mean, isn't she at that, like, the same level? I mean, essentially? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly the same level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She then goes on to suggest that she has reinforcements waiting for her in Persia and Armenia. Um, that's written in the Historia Augusta. Later historians dispute this because if the Persians were with her at this point, they would have likely been fighting for her. I mean, she could have done like a little, like a little fib to make her, they, to bolster herself. Most people say that this is mentioned in the Historia Augusta because it links Zenobia with Rome's ancient enemy uh, and it helps to paint her as a villain. Mm hmm. Once back in Palmyria, Zenobia bunkered down in preparation for a siege and did everything she could to prepare her city. But Aurelian was still able to overtake the city, and Zenobia was forced to flee with her son for the third time. Most of the stories say that Zenobia and her son, Vabalampus, fled on the back of a camel, famously the fastest camel of her breed, and made a beeline straight for Persia where she hoped to find sanctuary. It was the grown-up baby camel. It was. So like in the, the stories, grown up baby camel that was returned. They they make a point to be like, this is the fastest prized camel, and that's the one she rode on. Cool. Camel's like, can, can I not do this? <laughs> um unfortunately she kills dogs. What's to step up for the camels? <laughs> unfortunately, this is where the official record ends. Oh. What? You can't <laughs> leave me like that. I'm not gonna leave you oh, like okay. that, but Everything we're about to get into is speculation. Yeah. Now from here, we get to play a fun little game of choose your own adventure ending. I love these. Because <laughs> there are several different versions that were written about and none have ever been agreed upon. One version recalls a dramatic account where she and her son are just about to make it to the Euphrates River before the Romans finally catch up to her. I personally like to imagine Zenobia's literally got one foot on the boat and one on the dock when, like, some Roman soldier just grabs her and, yeah. and drags her off. <laughs> From this point, we are told that she is put in chains and delivered to Aurelian before she and her son are both taken to the city of Emesa and tried for their crimes. The Historia Augusta tells us that Zenobia blamed her actions on suggestions made by bad advisors. These men are in turn executed, and oh. this would have included both Zabdis and Cassius Longinus. That, I don't like that adventure because then she doesn't take accountability for her own actions. As for Zenobia and her son, the Historia Augusta tells us that they are taken back to Rome and forced to march in a Roman triumph. Zenobia is presented with gold chains around her wrists as punishment for her insolence, and she is paraded around as part of the spoils of Aurelian's conquest. I feel like we would have heard about that from the Roman side, too. If I mean, happened. it is the Roman side saying that, but again, it's it's oh. the really exaggerated version. Oh, okay. Another version suggests that she was taken back to Rome, but without her son, presumably he died along the way. Oh, no. But she was not forced to march in a triumph. She is then married off to a wealthy Roman man and lives the last of her days luxuriously and in relative peace, but without a title. 
One of the more tragic versions of Zenobia's ending has both Zenobia and her son drowning in the Bosphorus River while the ring transported back to Rome. Arabic writers had their own version of Zenobia's ending, and interestingly enough, Aurelian and, the, and Zenobia's Roman exploits are never once mentioned. Cool. They instead suggest that her undoing came from herself and from her own scheming. In their tale, Zenobia had murdered a tribal chief named Jedima on their wedding night before fleeing back to Palmyria. On like their wedding night? Like, on like their wedding night. Married to him? Yes. That sounds great. Probably like when they were in the middle of the deed. Doom, That's how doom. I picture it. She like pulls out a, <laughs> a knife and just stabs him. <laughs> um, but her murdered husband's nephew chases her down in Palmyria, and this is when she flees the city on the back of the camel towards the Euphrates River. Hmm. That's pretty much the only part of her story that both Roman and Arabic sources agree on. She's on the fence camel. Yes. <laughs> the grown-up baby camel. <laughs> now from here, Zenobia attempted to reach a secret tunnel that she had built under the river, but she is captured just as she is entering the tunnel. And rather than be captured, Zenobia schemes to die as a queen just as Cleopatra had done before her and takes her own life with poison. Most people tend to believe that Zenobia was captured and taken back to Rome, but Aurelian would have likely avoided parading around a woman in chains because it was A, bad PR, and B, it would have been embarrassing to admit to the world that the mighty Roman Empire had been bested by a woman for as long as it had. Oh my god, god forbid! The world, no. The world already knows. (laughs) As a powerful hostage and a former queen, captivity would have likely been very comfortable for her. So you can think of Eleanor of Aquitaine in her tower, but with Zenobia, she has views of the Mediterranean instead. What do you think? I like my version where um, Aurelia brings... Aurelia? Aurelia. 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 Aurelia is probably the female version of that dude. Brings her back and then falls absolutely madly in love with her and they have passionate hot sex and then they get married. <laughs> um, according to the Historia Augusta, he actually marries her daughter. Yeah, it's grosser. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the Historia Augusta. Yeah. And there's no official record of um, that ever happening. The drama. It's the soap opera of the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I like the one where she poisons herself. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one too, but it's... <laughs> It's, it's probably not real because it's yeah, the best it's, one. It's more likely she was captured and probably ends up getting married to some very yeah. wealthy Roman man. But she she gets to live and she's yeah. probably got servants and she's fed grapes. and She's fed grapes and fanned. <laughs> and fanned. With the big giant ostrich feathers. <laughs> she's just not a queen anymore, but she probably acts like a queen. <laughs> oh my God, you bet she does. She probably like... Her poor husband. He's probably like outward facing. He's the man of the house, but like behind closed oh, yeah, doors, she's absolutely. like, I am the queen of queens, you dumb bitch, and you will listen to me. And he's like, I am, the queen I'm so of sorry. Queens. <laughs> I am Augusta. And he's like, don't sit there. He's like, nobody can hey, hear that. Stop, 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 stop. I don't want to be poisoned. <laughs> Now, following the fall of their queen, Palmyria was initially treated to the same clemency that Emesa, Antioch, and the other cities in Asia Minor had been showed. But when Aurelian left the city to attend to matters in Rome, dissent quickly spread in the city, and soon a conspiracy was in the works to oust the Roman leadership that had been left behind to hold the city. 
One of the conspirators snitched and wrote to Aurelian of their plans, prompting him to march back on Palmyria to squash the whole thing once and for all. Fucking snitches! This time, he was not merciful to the city of Palmyria and instead employed the scorched earth tactics that he had become known for in the past. Aurelian basically went on a rampage in the city, killing men, women, and children. And dogs. Probably dogs. Damn it! The city never recovered after that. Wow. And it disappears into the annals of history. Annals. Annals of history. Not annals. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Uh. And that's probably why you've never heard of the city of Palmyria. Interesting. Yep. Okay. That's sad. As for the conspirator, he does not receive the gratitude he'd been expecting from Aurelian. No, because snitches get ditches. Yes. Aurelian was like, you are a traitor, you betrayed your own people, and you are not trustworthy. Yeah. And he has him executed. Snitches get (laughs) ditches, bitches. (laughs) You rhymed. I did. (laughs) On purpose. Emperor Aurelian will go on to unite the Roman Empire once more after decades of turmoil, but it will be short-lived. The problems the Empire faced before will crop up again. Rome is simply too large now, and in another 50 years or so, it will split in half permanently. The Western Empire will consist of Britain, Spain, France, Germany, and the northern parts of the Mediterranean, including Italy. The East will consist of Greece, Turkey, Egypt, Judea, and Asia Minor. In time, the Western Empire will dwindle completely and Rome itself will fall. And the Eastern Roman Empire will rise. Constantinople will eventually become the new center of power for what remains of the Roman Empire in the East. This becomes the Byzantine Empire. Okay. I love that the Western Empire is basically like all the like children that fight later on down the line <laughs> yes it is very much so and then the the eastern roman empire aka the byzantine empire is the one that's over in the east yeah. in, in constantinople yeah i just think it's now like, istanbul <laughs> they're all the ones that later on down the line they all fight amongst each other yes. like the children that they are <laughs> now as for zenobia there is no record of any of her children surviving her Um, As I mentioned, the Historia Augusta says that Aurelian married her daughter, but take that with a grain of salt. Did she even have a daughter? She did. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) How many kids did she have? I don't know. Oh, okay. Babalanthus, at least one daughter. (laughs) Babalanthus. It's still a ridiculous name, no matter what consonant you use in the beginning. (laughs) As for her legacy, Zenobia ends up becoming a very popular female figure in the Middle Ages, and was recognized by people as a formidable foe against Roman expansionism. She's often compared to the likes of Cleopatra and Boudicca for her desire to elevate her kingdom and preserve its culture in the face of Roman colonialism. Zenobia may well have been the most powerful woman in the history of the Roman Empire, as she ruled one-third of it completely in her own right and independent of any consort or lover. Catherine the Great of Russia would also cite Zenobia as a primary source of inspiration for her own style of rule that incorporated both elements of military might and philosophical sensibilities. Oh yeah. Today, Zenobia serves as a national symbol for Syria. She is a beacon for resistance in the Middle East, and she is a champion for those that fight against oppression and the right to self-determination in the face of imperialism and colonialism. And that is Empress Zenobia. Yes! She's awesome! She is. (laughs) 
Okay, so it is, well, not random. It will be random question Don't move, time. I'm awkwardly touching your hair. You had fur in your hair. Go oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so first off, the typical, was she more difficult or more damsel? Difficult, all the way. She was all the way difficult. Yeah. All the way. <laughs> Un- until the end, which we can't even yeah. say for sure what happened to her. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she, she definitely took on a kingdom. Yeah. She probably killed. She wore the cloak of manliness. Some people. (laughs) Um, She. I don't know that I believe she killed people. I don't know that I believe that she actually got involved that way. More than likely, she orchestrated it from a strategic point of view. Yeah. Because you don't conquer kingdoms usually bloodlessly. Yeah. After but I'm Egypt, saying, like, she did, didn't get her own yeah. hands dirty. True, yeah. true. But um, she was definitely not viewed positively by the institutions that would have been misogynistic. Yeah. By um, the bitches. <laughs> by the Romans. <laughs> but yeah, no, she's definitely, <laughs> I would say, like, difficult, yes, but, but in a more kind of tame way like she well in just a very natural way it just yes. it was who she was it yes. wasn't necessarily that she was being difficult but she was difficult to her enemies yes yeah yeah like she's just like i'm just here being my naturally awesome self and ruling she's like empire. i'm just doing my job yeah like, rome it's you're and not rome is the, are the ones that are freaking out like <laughs> but that's usually that is usually how it plays out is you know you're just doing what you think is, well, these women are doing what they think is right, what they think they should yeah. be doing, and what they think they're this owed is their and what they deserve. responsibility. Exactly. Leaders, leaders and because it's, you know, proves cumbersome and, you know, problematic to the people that, that they're doing it against, plus, you know, egos are bruised, then <laughs> of course they're going to be looked at as difficult. I mean, we do have her one damsel moment of fleeing on the back of the camel. She did have a damsel moment. The fastest one, camel. The fastest camel. The grown-up baby camel. And all. <laughs> I'm not letting it go. That's her one damsel moment. Yeah. Um, actually, she fled a couple of cities. That's that. Yeah. That was beast. Yes. Bestest. <laughs> fastest. Um, if, if it had been verified that she did march in a triumph, that would have been a pretty big damsel moment. Yeah. But more than likely that didn't happen so yeah all right we have decided zenobia is indeed difficult she is very <laughs> difficult well just difficult, difficult. Like, normal difficult like normal difficult yeah, yeah. like difficult in what we would imagine today of any woman yeah in a position of leadership yeah yeah with her um that's like that's like people nowadays calling a woman in power a bitch because she literally just told the truth and it hurt <laughs> so much <laughs> Um, it's calling certain women hawkish for being yeah. as ambitious as the men around them. Yeah. Can yeah. you not like that, please, Lord? Thank you. <laughs> All right. So then, um, random question time. We kind of just pulled this. We kind of struggled with a random question. She's like, I don't, I didn't have a random question. I was like, oh, I'll look one up. And I was like, none of these sound great. So then so I think we one. like made it up with, from. We, we saw it and we adjusted it. Yeah. Um, so it's basically. We made it our own. <laughs> What is your go-to comfort activity? You want me to go first? Yeah. You looked at me like you did. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so I have a couple, um, obviously. And what are the main... contexts of these comforts when you need them? My main one, if I'm having like a shitty day or a difficult day or just like, 
you know, I just need to like not be me for five minutes. I'll always go to writing. Yeah. Because not only am I kind of getting out of my own head and not being me for however long I write, but because I can take those emotions and use them constructively. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where like, yeah. So that's where a lot of like, like the books that you read, um, my friend came back and asked me after she read it. She's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, fine now. It's all in there. <laughs> like, it's all right there. It's yeah, fine. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm great. <laughs> but no, it that's just... It was very... That's... Yeah, yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I warned you, though. You did. No, it was good, though. But yeah, no, that's just... That's how I deal with my emotions, usually, is just taking them and kind of, like, releasing them. Or deeper. Yeah. yeah. Um, another comfort... Not necessarily from having a bad day. This was mostly when I lived back in California. So I lived really close to the ocean. Mm. Um, and it wasn't even if I was having a bad day. If I just needed a minute of quiet, a minute away, a minute to remember that my everything that happens is not insignificant, but it's in tiny the- in the scheme of things. Yeah. I would always go down to Dana Point Harbor and just sit on the rocks and just be, just like hang out with some of the like ocean. That. Yeah, you know, sea lions would hang out on the rock right there, and you're like, "Hey, buddy." Yeah. yeah, and it's usually I was usually like a sunset thing, so I watched the sunset. Nice. Yeah, that was somewhere to. I do miss that because the only thing I miss from California is being able to go to the beach. And now, I mean, water in general. So like, obviously, going to yeah. the lake is my thing. Like, I I just love to just even the pool, just floating in water and just. Yeah. It's very cleansing. Yeah. Um, What else? I have a lot of other things that I do, but yeah, those Those are the the main ones. Those are the two main ones. I also do what I know yours is going to (laughs) be because we share usually. (laughs) So what's yours? So I have, I have two, the one you're talking about. The main one is when uh, I'm just having a really bad day or like, my emotions and I'm, I'm really feeling them i'm in the feels as you I'm would in say the feels. she caught the feels or i'm stressed or um this is when i'm not in my head i listen to music mm-hmm. music is very calming for me it was my source of therapy when i was a kid if things were just overwhelming for me i would put my headphones on and completely shut the world out mm-hmm. um, and i still do that i usually do that when i'm writing too like i'm normally yeah. listening to music yeah, I, I do that when I'm writing too, but when it's when I can't really do anything else, it, it's literally just headphones on. I'm usually dancing in my apartment. I love it. <laughs> or sometimes I just lay on the floor and I just yeah. feel the music. Yeah. <laughs> she becomes the music. She's yes. one with the I music. I am one with the music. <laughs> um, I, I go through little music videos in my head of starring myself, yes. starring moi. That's like when you're when you were a kid and like a sad song yes. came on and you'd like stare out the window melancholically yes. and like you're in a music video with the love of your life you've never met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's totally you. always raining even though it's not raining. Yes. <laughs> um, the other thing I do if I'm if my anxiety has really flared up and that's I am in my head. It, this hasn't been lately because therapy's been very helpful. Therapy also. Yes. Um, Weird. <laughs> It's it's the future 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 portending, um, making up stories that don't exist, mind reading. If if I'm stuck in my head, or I could just be stressed at work too, and trying to accomplish like I was texting you earlier, sixteen hours of work in a ten hour day. Yeah. Um, 
I meditate now. Okay. I use the, this is not an ad for Headspace, but if you want to sponsor us. Yeah. Hi. (laughs) I use the Headspace guided meditation. It's usually lasts about 10 minutes. Um, It's the first time I was ever really able to get out of my head and just stop thinking because Mm -hmm. I live in my head. Yeah. It's exhausting. We all do. (laughs) Yeah. Like I will have 50 million things going on at once and guided meditation 10 11 minutes by the end of it i've like completely zoned out and it's been very helpful and very relaxing i usually watch tv if i want to zone out if i'm if i'm to the point where i've overextended myself and my body's shutting down on me that's when i zone out and i put on either a movie or a tv show yeah and i just turn off the world my phone is off or on silent and i just zone I get in trouble with that all the time. Like, my phone is rarely on me when yeah. I'm, like, by myself yeah. here, which is all the time. I've Just noticed, because yeah. I'll be like, I'm on my way, and then I'll be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> I try my to phone is, like, in the Ample heads up, room. too. <laughs> or on the freaking, we were, we spent a solid, like, five minutes earlier trying to find my phone, and it was literally right behind us on the rower. Don't ask me why it was on the rower. Stop rubbing your nose. I don't say that on the podcast. They're going to question everything. I have like, my leg is itchy. Stop it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you mittens. It's like red and rashy in the sad. I'm going to die. It's fine. Don't die. <laughs> to go eat. Yeah. Also, the animals in my house. Oh, the yeah, zoo. They're, they're going to eat you? No. Oh. What? No, no. I was saying. I'm continuing oh, your comfort. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're a big, they're a big comfort. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, um, those listening, we would love to hear from you what your comfort activities are. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. You have been listening to, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To Difficult Damsels. If you would like to suggest an episode for us in the future or just comment on any of our previous episodes, you can reach us at difficult.damsels at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just type in Difficult Damsels the podcast and it'll hopefully show up. Who knows? Their algorithms are stupid. But anyway. <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and if you guys want, so we're going to do some more relaxed episodes. Yes. We enjoyed them. And yeah. it sounded like the conversation. We got positive ones. feedback. So it sounded like the conversational episodes are good too. So if you have any. Then you want us to conversationally talk Converse about. Conversate about. Conversate about. Conversate. Just making up words here. Um, yeah, just. Well, that's not. It. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks for listening. That's and it. as always, we can never end this not in a way that's not awkward, but. Uh, <laughs> we are awkward humans, so it works. Stay difficult. Stay difficult. <laughs> <laughs>